Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field they love. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor of Politics, Erica Dobbs, whose research explores citizenship as it relates to immigration and social protections. Welcome, Erica. Thank Good you. to have you with us. Um, let's start with your interest in the theory and practice of politics. Um, how did you gravitate to that field? Mm. Um, so I grew up on the south side of Chicago, which first of all means I have a very cynical view of politics. <laughs> <laughs> I come by it honestly. <laughs> um, my father was a steel worker. And he was very involved in the Steelworkers Union. So he was head of grievances for a while. And at one point, he was a vice president of the union. Um, so we just talk about politics in our house <laughs> and argue about politics. And I can't ever remember not doing that. So, again, I, I think I just I come by it honestly. So, um, As far as following a career in it, how, how did that... Yeah, so I guess I would call myself the accidental academic. I never had any grand ambitions of being a professor, um, which is also kind of funny because I mentioned I was from the south side of Chicago. I actually grew up in Hyde Park, which is the home of the University of Chicago. So I was surrounded by academics. Um, in retrospect, like half of my little league parents were, you know, UFC faculty. But this is just, you know, I just I never knew. Um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think many young people who think they want to be lawyers, like, I'll go to college and major in political science and then go to law school. And I got to college and didn't major in political science and actually didn't go to law school. So uh, I, I worked as a paralegal after I graduated and realized that law was not for me. Um, it was nowhere near as exciting as I thought it would be. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's not like what you see on television. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just I I but I worked at a firm that specialized in labor and employment law. Mm-hmm. And I think with kind of in retrospect, with kind of my dad's background in organized labor and mm-hmm. kind of the intersection of labor and politics, mm-hmm. I I that's kind of was my entry point professionally, I guess. So I went back to school to get a master's in public policy. And when I finished that program, I went and worked as a, technically as a researcher, but I guess it would be a combination of kind of research, political strategy, and kind of rabble rousing um, <laughs> with the Service Employees International Union, SEIU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and a big focus of SEIU is organizing immigrant workers in the low-wage service economy. And I don't know, should I keep going with the meandering? Oh, no, <laughs> How did I get here? Please do. Please. So so I, I worked for two years at a local in Miami and two years working with the labor union is is like it's like a decade in dog, it's like dog years, right? Like it feels way <laughs> longer than it actually is. Um, and it was this really intense experience. And at one point the workers went on strike at the University of Miami and the the kind of core of, of the worker leadership 
was made up by um, basically a, a group of Cuban grandmothers mm. who had never participated in politics and had never really demanded, you know, anything of anybody other than, you know, their grandkids behaving, right, when <laughs> yeah. they came to visit. <laughs> and they were just fierce and fearless and kind of took on the university and took on the, the power structure of South Florida and they won. Hmm. And and it just raised really interesting questions for me about, you know, why do people participate in politics? And in particular, you know, how are how are how is this population of people, most of whom were not citizens, able to get public officials to listen to them? And to do what they wanted them to do and, and were able to kind of build alliances in the community. Right. And, and, and so that's just that's what I work on now. These are the kind of questions that I work on. But, um, yeah, I, I guess it just really just started with arguments around the dinner table. <laughs> and we're still arguing, you know, mm-hmm. 40 years later. So, so uh, a, lot, a big part of your research uh, focuses on immigration and, mm-hmm. and um, is this the experience that you had at SEIU was that kind of the beginning of what you know influenced now as an academic to pursue that that interest tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah I mean it was it was totally the SEIU experience so I mean SEIU has pretty much always been an immigrant union it's just who the immigrants were has changed right so a um, hundred years ago you know it was Irish and Polish workers, and today it's primarily Latino workers um, who are still doing the division I worked in is building services, right? So janitorial services, landscaping, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that, yeah, I mean, that's really where my interests stem from. And in particular, because we, we tend to think in political science you know, in very kind of these rational ways, right? So politicians give you something, right? Because they're rationally going to get something out of it, right? And so, but if people can't vote for you, then what do you get out of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of the mystery in all of this. Um, and we also tend to think of political participation in terms of voting, right? Like, that's what we do in a democracy. We vote. But there's other ways to be involved in politics and to move the system without even being able to vote, right? And that's what I saw in SEIU, right? That this was a way for people to get political representation, to have a voice, to get elected officials to respond to them. Um, But most people weren't citizens, right? And they weren't economically powerful, right? So there wasn't that aspect of it. Um, It was, it was, just a completely a story about kind of collective action and people leveraging their own personal networks and experiences into something kind of bigger than an individual and kind of really bigger than the union. And it was just a really kind of profound, powerful experience that I appreciate more now, I think, than I did when, you know, I was working 18 hour days. So... <laughs> Some of your of your research has focused on Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, why Ireland as a case study? So this is this again the accidental academic. So <laughs> I thought that my dissertation was going to be about because I had worked for a union. I thought it was going to be about looking at how unions were responding to immigration in countries that actually did not have a history of immigration. Right. So SEIU had been 
an immigrants union for a hundred years through multiple ways of migration in this country. But if you, if you look um, particularly kind of at the margins of, of Western Europe, there were countries that for a long time, you know, were places of emigration. These were the reserve. This, I mean, Ireland was a reserve labor pool for the UK, basically, right? Um, Spain was for its northern neighbors. And really since the mid-1990s became places of immigration. This is really rapid shift, right? So even today, if I say I work on, you know, Ireland and immigration, people think that I'm talking about Irish people who emigrated to the U.S. Mm -hmm. But as a percentage of the population... The foreign-born population as a percentage of the total population in Ireland is comparable to that of the U.S. today. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And at times it's higher, depending on how you count it. It's definitely higher than the U.K., which is really? just an unbelievable huh. reversal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of those people are, are Irish nationals with foreign passports, right? It's just kind of mm -hmm. what happens when you're in an immigration state. Mm -hmm. but they have a really significant immigrant population there. And so... I was just interested in what they were doing. And Ireland's a, a particularly interesting case because Irish unions were actually working with SEIU, basically saying, please tell us how to organize immigrants because we don't know. Mm -hmm. We've never had to do this before. Um, so I went to, to do this comparative project looking at Irish unions versus Spanish unions and found that it actually wasn't that interesting. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they were kind of trying, but... Uh, I think kind of what killed that project for me <laughs> was I, I talked to an Eastern European organizer who looked at me and said, these unions aren't even going to be around in 10 years. Huh. <laughs> I said, well, I better not spend 10 years studying them. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and, and kind of a, a different story emerged, a more interesting story. And to be fair, this this happens all the time, right, when people do their do their research. You, you go in thinking one thing and you come back with something totally different. But mm -hmm. yeah, I find a much more interesting question. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So it kept the countries, mm -hmm. but it kind of changed the question. So, I mean, the Ireland piece is interesting. So my mom's family is actually Irish. So her grandparents are from Ireland. Mm. Um, so there was this very loose kind of family tie that didn't really drive my decision, but kind of came up in, in funny conversations when I was there. Um, so that, that was kind of another interesting thing of, of doing research there because no one looked at me and said, <laughs> you're Irish. <laughs> you're Irish. <laughs> well, they didn't. I'd be like, oh, you know, my grandmother's a Carmody from County Clare and people would be like, oh, okay. That's like mildly entertaining. So. <laughs> well, can you tell us about your research there? Oh, so, so what I ended up, I don't know how far back you want me to go. Oh. The accidental dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so as I said, I was I I started out doing this research on unions, and I t I talked to a lot of unions, and I was, I was mainly in Dublin, and I wanted to talk to um, the people who were working on immigration outreach, and as it turned out, the person I wanted to talk to was in Belfast, hmm. and so I said, okay, I guess I'll go to Belfast. Like, I've never been. I'll check it out. And um, I got there and, and, had a, and had a conversation that changed the entire trajectory of my project. So um, Belfast is on the island of Ireland, and um, they share many organizations across the border, but technically it's still part of the UK, hence all the <laughs> grumpiness uh, about the political situation. Um, but, but I said to her, you know, why are you, why are you here? 
why are you guys doing this from up here? Mm-hmm. Um, and the response was, well, you know, Northern Ireland gets enormous funding from both the UK and the EU for all this good relations stuff as part of the peace process. So the troubles kind of formally ended in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. And as part of that, there's all this investment in kind of fostering and maintaining good relations that was really meant to manage relations between Protestants and Catholics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's because the language used was quite broad. If you're doing work on quote unquote good relations, you are now eligible for some of this funding. And so it's really being funding funded through this. It's called the Peace Three round of funding through the European Union. So you could not get this money in Dublin, but you could get this money in Belfast, right? And so I kind of said, huh. Then some other things came up. So Northern Ireland has um, extremely strong anti-discrimination legislation stemming from hmm. the, the conflict. And so this was kind of a tool that organizers had at their disposal that they did not have in Ireland. Um, and again, this is kind of a legacy of the conflict. So I started kind of sketching out, well, what are some of these differences, right? And and so, and how does this affect kind of the tools that organizations have when they start thinking about, you know, are we going to organize immigrants or do we even stand up for immigrants' rights? And I just kind of backed into this other story. And so, so what the project then really um, ended up being about is um, – Basically, why do we see in these kind of in these new destinations, these places where immigration is 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 new, um, why do we see some and I, it's it's an awkward term, but some kind of um, native political organizations and actors treating these newcomers like constituents, right? Because they couldn't vote, they couldn't reward them at the ballot box. Immigration is not politically pop- <laughs> popular uh, in most countries, and yet we saw kind of. Um, in some cases, really kind of vocal efforts to say, you know, immigrants should have right to citizenship. Oh, excuse me, we sh- they should participate in electoral politics. You know, they should be, you know, taken seriously as members of our political community. And in other places, that wasn't happening. And so what I realized I had stumbled into, and again, this is something I realized much later after that, inter- that fateful interview in Belfast, was that there's something about places where th- that have a historical legacy of conflict that if they have resolved those conflicts and created new really strong laws to kind of um, manage social conflict and especially to guard against discrimination in employment and in public services, um, that those places are kind of particularly well equipped then to deal with new immigration because they have these anti-discrimination laws in place that that benefit a huge chunk of the native population and have an interest in seeing them maintain over time. But you also have political actors who are deeply vested in maintaining them as well. And the parallel I make is thinking about affirmative action legislation in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That, that the civil rights legislation came out of a movement that was specifically designed to address the systemic discrimination against African-Americans in pr- because of the timing of it, what it also meant is that, and this is kind of an interesting kind of historical quirk, was that at the same time as the civil rights legislation was being passed, immigration legislation in this country changed. And whereas it used to primarily be European immigration, 
the the legislative legislative changes in the 1960s that happened around the same time opened the door for non-European dis- uh, immigration. So today we have immigration flows that are dominated by Latinos, Asians, and and Sub-Saharan Africans. And so the the anti-discrimination legislation put in place again to respond to the question of African American inclusion in politics extends to these new groups, right? So you have something institutionally set up for one group but in reality covers all these other groups, right? Mm-hmm. And that's basically what happened in Northern Ireland. And so hmm. that these legacies of conflict, if they're resolved, have institutional legacies that kind of inadvertently benefit these new groups that come sort of in. Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an extra benefit that no one expected. Oh, no, and they totally didn't expect it. And so yeah. part of my project is going back and being sh- like, there was no anticipation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no one ever thought there would be like immigration to Belfast. <laughs> that's right. I mean, this is a conflict. I mean, it's a, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a place that's associated with with conflict. Right. Yeah. Right. And and but I mean, they they have it not to the extent that they have it, you know, in Dublin or other places, but they have it. And so when you kind of broaden the the scope a little bit, um, we see something kind of similar, not 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 as nicely parallel, but but something fairly similar. When we look at Spain, so um, the the process of democratization in Spain in the 1970s had and the institutions that were set up um, in order to kind of protect, in, in this case, kind of minority language rights, this is Spanish national minorities, the Basque and Catalans, um, again, the same way have kind of created space for these new groups to come in and some institutional tools to deal with their inclusion or exclusion. Um, they also kind of shape the mindset of political elites. Hmm. Uh, so if you if you talk to people in the Basque country, um, they're kind of proud of saying, you know, yes, you know, we welcome immigration. Unlike you know those people in Madrid, right? You know, who are unwelcoming, right? There's a little virtue signaling here, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> but at the same time, that 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 these institutional legacies from past conflicts basically can be repurposed. Right. To to address kind of new forms of diversity Hmm. via immigration in ways that when when these institutions were set up, nobody could have imagined. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And you also just have kind of domestic native constituencies really committed to to maintaining um, these institutions and um, kind of ideals of equality um, that you also wouldn't necessarily have. So that ended up kind of being the product. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, that's, no, that's good. good. That's, that's great. Um, staying a little bit in, in Ireland, can you talk to us about Ireland's role in Britain's ongoing Brexit oh, situation? <laughs> okay. <so. laughs> it has nothing to do with immigration, of course, right? <laughs> not at all. Well, not, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So I, I laugh because I think quite often people forget that Northern Ireland exists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was clearly forgotten in the debate and the run-up to Brexit, right? You don't see a lot of conversation about, hmm, <laughs> what would this mean given that there actually is a border, mm-hmm. a land border mm-hmm. between the UK and the European Union mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the Republic of Ireland? Um what, sorry, what do you want me to actually say about like, <laughs> What do you want to tell us? <laughs> uh, like, explain it out or just 
say this is just like an ish show of epic proportion. I mean, like, <laughs> why, kind of why, is, why is it? Why is it an issue? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. So if you, okay. So if you take the train from Dublin to Belfast today, the only way that you know that you've crossed an international border is that your cell phone beeps to tell you you're now on a new network. <laughs> There's yeah. n- there's no physical presence on the border. And this is mm-hmm. a really big deal because for years there was. And it was intimidating, mm-hmm. right, that that this was a heavily armed border in part because there was a lot of weapons smuggling. There were, there were a lot of kind of people on the run going back and forth, right? It, it was um, uh, areas of the, the border were always kind of called bandit country. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it's very kind of Wild West um, there's a violent place. And so um, people are very proud of the fact that there is not a, a manned border. Mm-hmm. Um, it's economically important that there's not a quote unquote manned border. Um, there's a lot of cross border shopping because of um, um because Ireland is on the euro and Northern Ireland uses the pound because it's part of the UK. So depending on currency swings, people will do their grocery shopping on one side or the mm-hmm, other. But mm-hmm. if it's a 15 minute drive in either direction, like who cares, right? right. You know, where does your money go the furthest at which Tesco? Um, and, and, uh, but a core component of the peace process was getting rid of the border. And so the idea that, um, let me back up a little bit. So if Britain were to leave the EU without any kind of agreement about the movement of goods, they would have to enforce a border mm-hmm. for customs reasons, yeah. right? So no more like $30 a month savings at the Tesco, which is like the minor thing. But the real thing is somebody has to check, right? And so you can't just go flying through that the way that people go now. Um, and, and, and the economic impact of that, the psychological impact of that from people who live in the border regions, but also just the political impact of that, because what it's doing is basically unraveling a, a key component of the peace agreement. Uh, and there was just no conversation about this. And so the problem now is, well, there's multiple problems. That's a problem as it stands for kind of the the international relations issues around the border. The political problem is that the current government in Westminster, so Theresa May is a prime minister. She's the head of the conservative party. Um, she does not, her party does not have a majority in the House of Commons, and therefore they had to form an agreement with some other party, right, to have kind of a, a, um, a, a working government. And the party that she happened to have this agreement with is the DUP, which is the party that was opposed to the peace process, that is the most hardline party in Northern Ireland, um, and do not want to do anything that would remotely threaten political union with Britain, much less hint that they could somehow someday uh, be tied to the Republic of Ireland. So there's a couple options, right? So the, the worst option for everyone is that Britain crashes out and there's no agreement, which mm-hmm. means they immediately have to impose a hard border mm-hmm. between the Republic of Northern Ireland, reimpose custom checks um, for the Irish 
this is a red line. This is absolutely unacceptable. And for Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland, so the Catholic community, absolutely unacceptable. Another option would be that um, Northern Ireland gets a lot of special dispensation from London. They have a lot of their own rules for things. They even have kind of a different electoral process for local government. And so kind of in line with that, um, they would have kind of separate customs rules from the Mm -hmm. rest of the UK. And so they would basically follow EU customs rules so they would not have to enforce the border. And so the customs border would really be the Irish Sea, right? For the DUP, this is a red line. Mm. (laughs) This is completely unacceptable (laughs) because they they are the UK. (laughs) They're going to be treated like the rest rest of the the United Kingdom. And so we have a nearly impossible problem. Mm-hmm. So f- back in England, and I say England specifically because Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all voted to remain in the EU. Mm-hmm. England voted to leave. Back in England, another option would be maybe we should have another vote because people didn't really get the first time <laughs> what they were doing, what they were doing, and what the actual ramifications would be. And now they've seen it. And now that they see it, they may want to vote differently. <laughs> For the Brex, hardcore Brexiteers, this is a red line. You absolutely <laughs> cannot do There's this. There's no way out. It's yeah. undemocratic. You're surrounded by red lines. Oh no, it's totally. It's yeah. The fourth potential option is. Well, maybe we make some special rules for Ireland and then we won't have to make a border and maybe we can get a couple more special rules for the UK. So this is kind of like in Theresa May's world, just getting kind of Brussels to agree to some special rules, not other special rules, does away with all these other problems. For Brussels, this is a red line. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's really hard to see. A path forward from this, because yeah. the logical thing for one person is the absolutely not, never, ever in a million years option. Someone's going to have to cross a red line. They're going to have to do it. They're going yeah. to have to do it. Um, you mentioned the the, the difficulty um, that uh, um, non-citizens have in getting involved in the political system because... Why should politicians care about them if they can't vote? Um, in the countries you've studied, how does that happen? Mm. So the countries I study are quite interesting in that they're actually very liberal on non-citizen voting. Hmm. So in Ireland, anyone who has been resident for six months in the country can vote in local elections. As long as you're an adult. It does not matter what your immigration status is. It doesn't matter what your citizenship is. Hmm. You live here, you can vote. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the, the interesting kind of corollary to that is if you are an Irish citizen and you leave the country, you cannot vote by absentee ballot. You have to be physically present to vote. So that so mm-hmm. you can kind of see there there is a consistent logic of yeah. you live voting here, rights. You are, belong here. You live here. Yes. Mm-hmm. And right. what if right. And you live and, here, you and, have a say. You have a say, and also you have to live with the outcome of the election. <laughs> right. Right. Which As is, we can say. <laughs> that, right. That makes sense, right? Yeah. Look, it's at it's a least logically consistent. Yeah. I'll give it that much. Um, no, well, the, the, I think part of the real reason why Irish people can't vote from overseas is that it's a country with a long history of emigration. So there's a there would be a huge voting population. <laughs> Excuse me. And many people leave because they're unhappy with the government. So. 
<laughs> you're kind of not going to empower the opposition uh, mm. from abroad so people can't vote. Um, but in really important issues, people will, at least if they're within the EU, will, vote, will fly home to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, they had a they have a they had a national referendum on abortion rights uh, not too long ago, and people were flying in from that. Um, I mean, you can also mm-hmm. fly and you know European budget airways for for twenty euros. So yeah. you have an hour and twenty euros. Ryanair, and then, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Zoom in on Ryanair, cast your ballot, and go back to London or Manchester <laughs> or Madrid. Yeah. So, so, so that's kind of an interesting quirk. Um, in in Spain is somewhat similar too. They their non-citizen voting rights, and again, it's only for local elections, not national elections, but it, it does depend on your national origin. So under Spanish law, any country where Spanish citizens have the right to vote, they will get reciprocal voting rights in Spain. Um, and so um, all EU member states can vote in the local elections of other EU member states or EU elections just by virtue of being an EU citizen. Um, but there's other countries that are really quick. So like New Zealand, I guess, has really fairly liberal non-citizen voting laws. So New Zealanders can vote in Spanish elections, right? Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, well, they, they, they get the reciprocal rights, right? Yeah. And so when they started having significant immigration, particularly from Latin American countries, uh, under the socialist government, which is actually they are back in power now. They got mm-hmm. kind of knocked out for a while. But in the, in the um, mid and late 2000s, um, this was a government of Zapatero. He went out and signed bilateral agreements with key sending countries that if they so those countries had to change the rules to say Spaniards can vote in our local elections. So their citizens would then have the right to vote in Spanish local elections. So there was actually a conscious effort mm-hmm. um, to go out and get other countries to to basically change their rules to kind of give their citizens the right to vote in Spain. And people still don't necessarily take advantage of it. But it was a really interesting and unusual, uh, maybe a little bit politically cynical <laughs> move um, to extend a right to people that's normally reserved for citizens. Um, the, the, the kind of interesting counterpoint to that is um, at, the, at the same time, you have South American political parties. I, I distinctly remember writing the, the Metro in Madrid and um, seeing election campaign posters from Peru and Bolivia uh, in the subway, right? So this is this is this basically speaks to the fact that increasingly these immigrant populations are seen as an important constituency in the countries that they left behind and in the countries that they're living in now. And so it raises all these kind of interesting questions of, you know, especially if there are close elections, you know, what does this mean for how politicians define their constituencies? It's also sort of adding a porous kind of quality to citizenship, isn't it? I mean, it's it's. I mean, citizenship has almost always been sort of almost defined by the ability to vote, Mm -hmm. and when that becomes a little soft at the edges, it 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 interests me that that's sort of a, a an evolution of the idea of citizenship. Yeah, it is. Someone someone did a study. A while ago, so it would be interesting to see if it was 
if you updated it now, what what they would find. But there does seem to be kind of an inverse relationship between access to citizenship and access to non-citizen voting. So places that tend to make non-citizen voting more accessible make it really hard to get legal citizenship. citizenship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a way of saying, like, mm-hmm. look, you're here. You're part of this community. We're acknowledging that in some way. But you... You still have got a ways to go before you get a passport effectively, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 then again, vice versa. That that it's, if it's fairly easy to get citizenship, then countries don't feel like they need to give people voting rights. Um, there is a history of this, though. I mean, in 19th century U.S., you did not have to be a citizen um, if in, when you arrived uh, at Ellis Island. Um, and again, it, it kind of varies place by place, but I think you could, you could, as long as you'd applied for citizenship, you could vote. And there's kind of these, I'm not sure if they're urban myths or, <laughs> uh, how well documented this is idea that, you know, that the democratic party is like signing people up on the docks and <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, like machine politics, the machine sets into motion, you know, the ship is coming. Um, you can always find a cynical side to these things. I, right? I, I, I tried to warn you. <laughs> I think, I think that was the first thing I said. <laughs> I that that's that's classic Chicago <laughs> politics, you know. The mm. cynical professor yeah. going to sign you up for a blog. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, the, the students balance me out, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 In this electoral process that we've been talking about, you focus uh, more on the role of bureaucrats. Why is that? In um. In the electoral process, or yeah, and so when you're uh, when we're talking about immigrant communities, how to, how to engage them in the electoral mm. process? Mm. I think it was it was one of your papers. Oh right, right, right. Um, yeah, got that from. Um, bureaucratic incorporation. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So okay, so yeah, so I I have um, there's really interesting research in the U.S. and new destinations within the U.S. and in particular the shift in the '90s and 2000s of Latino immigrants. Um, moving to the South. Mm-hmm. And this was a region that basically has not had immigration since it, since it was settled by Europeans, right? And there's there was just this explosion, um, in part driven by the housing boom, right? Because a, a lot of Latino immigrants work in construction, disproportionately high number work in construction. And so there was some interesting research about, you know, integration and new destinations within the U.S. And what people were finding is, and, and this makes a lot of sense when you think about it, right, that that really for a lot of people, your first interaction with the state is just through through the bureaucracy, right? You sign your kids up for school. You have to get a driver's license. Um, and, and so there's kind of array of public services um, and so what they were starting to find, and this was something that I was starting to pick up on in, in Ireland, is that um, some bureaucrats start to see part of their role, at least, in kind of bringing in new immigrants as kind of part of their, their constituencies, mm-hmm. effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this, this in and of itself could be a form of incorporation. So I'm a political scientist, so I was particularly interested in how this works for the political process. Excuse me. And so um, far more so in Europe than in the U.S., there's a lot of public money for um, government-led efforts to foster integration. Hmm. Um, the same way as European countries spend a lot more money on their on their welfare states 
<laughs> they spent a lot more money on the state in general. Um, and so this was really a thing that a lot of European countries have these integration ministries hmm. um, or they have kind of um, departments within broader bureaucracies dedicated to outreach to immigrant communities. And so, yeah, I did this 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 paper on, on Ireland that that I- Ireland has these wide open electoral laws and when I was doing my research, they were going kind of through this process of political realignment. So there was a lot of electoral competition. Um, and this is kind of a moment where you would expect political entrepreneurs, particularly as smaller parties trying to kind of gain seats, to say, hey, we have this new constituency and they're kind of not tied to a party yet. So maybe we should try and capture them for our party and mm-hmm. get some votes and increase their standing. And it wasn't happening. It really wasn't happening. And But what we did see is that local government was basically playing this role. So local government launched of um, an immigrant voters registration campaign. And it was totally nonpartisan, but it, they really pushed the idea. It's like, hey, did you know, first, did you know you have a right to vote? Because a lot of people didn't because yeah. it's so unusual. Right. And, and then second, you know, when, you know, once you're registered, here's what you need to do. Right. And and they they try to get parties involved. They kind of danced away from it. Um, But, yeah, it was it was again, it was this was kind of just like the state trying to herd people to the polls. Um, And again, I'm not not so sure that would happen in this context, Um, but in the European context, even then it doesn't necessarily happen. So it's I don't know. It was was just kind of curious. Um, Um, I'd like to go back to, um, you know, we were talking about um, citizenship and voting rights and um, are places like Spain and Ireland and New Zealand just sort of eccentric islands (laughs) (laughs) in the in the the political world or are or is globalization having an effect on how political how how representation works? So I think in the Span- in the Spanish case, the liberalization of the voting laws, this was kind of clearly in response to immigration, right? I can't speak to New Zealand. <laughs> That's me on my wheelhouse. They just always pop up everywhere. So we'll pretend I never said that. Um, in the Irish case, it's another example of just this kind of quirk of history. And so the Irish changed. So... Um, let me back up a little bit. Um, when Ireland became independent, they still had a large number of people who identified as British and who were British citizens or British landowners, right? So they're kind of there part-time. And at some point when they started doing local voting reform, there was a conversation about, you know, the the voting rights of non-citizens, but by non-citizens, it was really a conversation about British people. And so if you go back, which I did, when I went back and looked through the legislative transcripts, I mean, they were literally would stand up and say, like, we don't anticipate that this means all of a sudden all these French people are going to be voting, right? Mm-hmm. This is about British people who are our friends and neighbors and they're parts of our community and they're kind of good civic citizens. And so they should be able to vote, you know, just like everybody else. But the rule is not 
does not say British people can vote. So it's again, just, it's the law of unintended consequences. It was just easier bureaucratically to say if you lived here for a certain amount of time, you could vote because then mm -hmm. no one has to check. Like, do right. you have a you know, like, yeah. like this is just an easy thing to do because no one can imagine that anyone. I mean, this was still a time when thousands of people left Ireland every year. Right. <laughs> so no one was thinking that thousands of people would be coming in. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. so again, law of unintended consequences. But when you <laughs> dig into the kind of the institutional origins of this stuff, yeah, it's totally, mm -hmm. totally accidental. Mm -hmm. uh, you've examined um, access to social protections for uh, immigrant populations and you specifically focus on undocumented mm. uh, populations. Why focus on that, on those groups? Um, I mean, primarily because they don't get access to anything generally. And so it's kind of a, when, when they do, I think you kind of hone in on it, mm -hmm. right? Like what's mm -hmm. going on here? Mm -hmm. In the U.S. at least, when we think of immigrants, we tend to think of people who are um, moving to a new place, intending to stay there forever, um, um, eventually becoming citizens. But especially these days, there's another type of immigrant, right? The kinds of just following a job across a border and may not have any intent to stay and, and has still roots in the other country. And um, I'm curious about how their experience is different from that of, of, sort of what we think of as the immigrant. So I think that, I think the key distinction here is what we think of, right? We like to tell ourselves that if people are coming here, it's because they want to settle here and have kids here and raise a family here and be here forever. That has never been the case. So just even when people were coming from Europe in the 19th century on steamships that, you know, it was not a six hour trip, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They were planning to go home. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were planning home and a lot of people did go home and we don't talk about that. Right. Because it's part it's kind of part of this American national mythology. Yeah. Right. People mm -hmm. came and, you know, you come through Ellis Island, you know, you, you see the Statue of Liberty and this is it. Right. And people settle and a lot of people went home um, and even people who didn't go home were planning on going home and a lot of them just never made it. And so I, I actually don't think that that's changed. Mm -hmm. um, people held on to their culture when they came to. I mean, the, the, the circulation of German language newspapers uh, in, in the early 20th century was extraordinarily high and only went down because of anti-German sentiment during World War I, right? So people mm -hmm. were still holding on to language. They were still holding on to culture. Um, people still sent mass cards home for funerals, right? That these things were all working in the 19th century and they work through the 20th century and they'll work through the 21st century. It's that the technology is different. You know, that's kind of the, the prime. It's faster, right? It's more instantaneous mm -hmm. than it used to be. But I don't, I don't think that the expectations when people come and how that changes is a subtle. I, I, I think that's actually a constant. You also study access to healthcare mm -hmm. of immigrants. Can you tell us a little about that work that you do for immigrant populations? So, so some of the work I do, and it's most of the work I do in social protection, healthcare, things like that, 
that's that's actually a team of researchers that I work with. So um, I work with professors at at Wellesley and Amherst, um, and through the we all met through the Transnational Studies Initiative at, at Harvard, um, which started a couple of years ago, and we've all kind of maintained our ties as we've scattered <laughs> across the country. Um, but I, I think the, the so so the the big thing behind that is this idea that access to social protection and services is primarily and the US is as usual weird case but for most people is primarily through the state right so to speak back to this question of citizenship a country of legal citizenship determines your social citizenship right what rights you have in terms of if you get sick in old age etc cetera, etc cetera. except in a world when people are moving across borders um then what does this mean, right? Where does responsibility for social protection lie? And so in some of the healthcare stuff I've done, um, the, the way I think that we've traditionally thought about this is that kind of people from the global South move to the global North and part is a source of social protection for their families. So they send money home as remittances and that allows people at home to get access to healthcare services or other forms of social protection. But that person who moved loses that, right? Mm -hmm. Because the new place that they're in, the host country that they're in, they don't have access to those services. Um, but that's changing a bit, right? Either, and it's changing in different ways. And so part of what we're trying to figure out is how do people navigate this, right? Who do you make demands from and kind of what are your options? So one option is the state. Well, most states say, well, if you're not a citizen, you can't get access to services. You definitely, maybe you can if you're kind of a permanent resident, you've been here long enough, um, but you definitely cannot if you're undocumented, right? Um, and so what do people do? What are some of the workarounds? Um, and so some of our findings have been quite interesting. So, so one interesting finding is that there are th the demands on the home country states have increased. So, for example, um, the, uh, the Mexican government now through its consulates in the U.S. offers some kind of basic health services. Hmm. So, for example, um, vaccinations for kids going back to school, which if you pay out of pocket are really expensive. <laughs> this is a couple hundred dollars, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can do that through the consulate. Um, there was a pilot program a, f a few years ago, and we're still kind of trying to figure out what actually happened with it, um, that would link um, communities of agricultural migrant workers who traditionally, you kind of go to the same places every year for certain harvests, right? So um, Washington State, it's a big state for uh, apple production, so you have kind of the same crews of people who come annually to, to pick apples before they go somewhere else. And um, there was an attempt to link um, the, the healthcare services from people's communities of origin to these places where they worked. So there was a clinic set up in Washington state where people were going that had ties to the health services in in um I can't and I can't remember which state it was in Mexico where people were coming from. So when mm -hmm. you finally did go home, they still had your records that something happened to you there. Mm -hmm. But it was in effect that we have a transnational population, and if we're offering these services to our citizens, they have to be transnational. Their services, services are following yeah. their 
constituents. Exactly. And I think this is driven in part also by the expansion of of political citizenship in that um, Mexican nationals living in the U.S. have a lot more political rights now than they used to have. And they've put way more demands on their government to pay attention to them. The feeling is increasingly, you love asking us for remittances, right? And holding us up as these kind of like models. And, you know, these are our brave citizens, you know, going abroad and working hard and blah, blah, blah. We have some things to say about the way that you are handling things. <laughs> and you're not just going to keep patting us on the head. Like we want, we mm-hmm. want, you know, some say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that is kind of, part and parcel of that process mm-hmm. is is getting them to, again, and this is kind of the core of what I do, rethink for, for, for politicians, like, how do you define constituency? And in a world of immigration, like, we have to redefine this in a way that's not kind of limited by borders. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to that, you've also used the term gray zones. Can, mm. you, can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah, so... I mean, this. The, so in the in the U.S. and in Spain, both both countries are extremely decentralized politically, right? They're they're federal, they're basically federal, um, and so subnational governments actually are the ones who take on a lot of responsibility for social services. So you know, part of the big debate around the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. is the extent to which states decide to expand um, eligibility. Uh, for for Medicaid, right? And this is a state-by-state basis. So because states have a fair amount of latitude in how they administer programs, this creates kind of um, what we would call gray zones, kind of these, these, there's some ambiguity and this ambiguity could be kind of a way to get access to services. Um, and it's an ambiguity, again, that's created when you have Um, kind of a national government saying one thing, but state and local governments that face different demographic pressures maybe are politically configured in a way (laughs) that is not totally aligned uh, with the capital can go on their own. (laughs) I know, as you're sitting in California, right? Yeah. But, okay, so here's the interesting thing. So we would kind of expect that, oh, California, right? Like, we go our own way. The rest of the country follows along at some point. But the interesting thing that we're, we're, and this is kind of some of the stuff that I have like kind of sitting, sitting on my hard drive now saying, do something with me, um, (laughs) is that we see this sometimes in politically conservative places where you would Mm -hmm. not expect. So, for example, um, in, in, um, in Spain, the government, I think in about 2012, uh, announced that, um, Spain has, Spain, like most European countries, has universal medical insurance, um, and at the time, undocumented people were able to access it. And so the government wanted to stop this and announce that that they were basically cutting off access to the undocumented. Um, and if people, if, if the undocumented wanted health insurance, they had to buy it on the private market. And for the record, it was like 60 euro a month or something, <laughs> which for an American is a copay if you have insurance. But in the context of universal health care, this was kind of, you know, seen as as an affront. So um, the horror. <laughs> oh, the horror. I know. I know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I just remember being in Spain and people complaining about this. I'm like, do you, you, I, you know, I'm American, right? <laughs> Cause I'm like, please give me some of this. Um, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so, so 
So the reactions in some way were fairly predictable in that. So this was the conservative government that said that announced this. So the the Spanish um, um, the autonomous communities are kind of the equivalent of states in the U.S. The autonomous communities that were run by the opposition socialists were immediately, you know, no, we're not going to do this. You know, we're not kicking people like this is inhumane and da 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 da. And you know, there go the evil. You know, uh, the, the conservatives again, et cetera, et cetera. You had this somewhat predictable reaction of kind of Spain's uh, um, the Basques and the Catalans who who take special pleasure in not doing what Madrid wants them to do, uh, <laughs> saying no, we're not going to do that. No, but I think the Basque government actually immediately sued uh, <laughs> the national government, saying no, 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 we do our own thing here. No, no, no. The the most interesting pushback came from the region Galicia. And Galicia is in the northwest of the country, and it's fairly notorious for being extraordinarily politically conservative. This is kind of the base of support for Franco. But Galicia said no. They said, we are not going to stop services. We're not going to do this. And so it's, it's when, you know, it's stuff like this that we get the, what you don't expect to see. Why would a conservative region that's ostensibly aligned with the conservative government say no and and say no because they were giving state benefits to undocumented immigrants, which is an extraordinarily politically unpopular thing to do in pretty much any country. The, the rationale we kind of heard, and I'm still trying to suss this out, is that um, it, for them, it was really a public health issue and mm-hmm. we care about public health. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make health publicly available. And we don't really care about oh, you are where you're from. no, no. That that was that was the logic, but it but it but it was an ideology, mm-hmm. and that happens. And 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 things like that happen in unexpected places, and again, kind of creating ambiguity around access to. I guess it's also sort of a reminder that our ideas about um, political ideology are kind of these fixed poles that we've lived with all our lives, but they're really just constructs and there are complicated things going on under the surface. I, I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, sometimes, to be fair, it, sometimes it's hard to do comparisons with, with the U.S. and Europe because I think Europeans, regardless of political affiliation, just have fundamentally different ideas about the role of the state, right? Mm-hmm. And any public opinion comparisons you see, there, there's they always ask these kind of questions, you know, do you think the government should do more to protect people or should, it's a, like, you know, individual initiative? And Americans always come out on like the individual initiative side. Europeans tend to lean more on the government side, right? Um, even if you're kind of politically conservative. Because it's, it's just their social contract. It's just really, really different. So here we like to call our, all ourselves a nation of immigrants. Mm. Right? Yet immigration still a divisive topic and, and continues to be and, and more so today, you know, uh, giving politics and um, and rhetoric. Can you tell us a little bit about the condition of immigration in the U.S.? What are some of your thoughts of what's happening? What do you see? Are there any lessons that we can learn from the case studies that you research on? Take your time. See, no easy question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
So it's tricky. I mean, so I, I we have kind of a national mythology and we have the way that people operate. And I think the way that people operate generally hasn't changed, right? I think a lot of people historically who, who emigrated, you know, I'm going long enough to like earn enough money to, to, to mm-hmm. buy some land and build a house and mm-hmm. then I'm going to go home. Mm-hmm. And then they do that, but then they don't actually go home until like 30 years later and then maybe you retire, yeah. <laughs> right, to, yeah. your, to your farm with your house. Um, but that's just kind of always been the way it worked. I think a, a key difference today, and, and so if you if you look at kind of the numbers and you look at immigrants as a percentage of the population, we've pretty much hit kind of that same peak point that we hit around the turn of the last century, right, right before World War I. Um, and immigration then was hugely contentious, right? I mean, the, the debates are almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. The things that people say are almost exactly the same. The groups are different, right. but what mm-hmm. they say is the same. So, I mean, the same way that the people that you see the political cartoons and the political debates around Irish immigrants, right? That they, they were violent. And I mean, basically they were, they were violent, drunk leprechauns who were going to be more loyal to the Pope than to the U S government. Um, you hear a lot. I mean, it's 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 striking how this mirrors the way that a certain element in American politics talks about Muslims. Yeah. Right. They'll hmm. never integrate. They're violent. It's all based on religion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, but 50 years after people were saying these things about the Irish, Kennedy was sworn in as the president. Right. Can that happen again? I don't know. And one of the big differences, and it was striking that this came up at a European conference I was at, and I think about it a lot, is the U.S. basically stopped immigration for really from World War One until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It pretty much shut mm-hmm. down. Um, and in the interim, you had a war. You had World War Two, where... The lists of names of people in the papers who had been killed were Sullivan and, you know, whatever ethnic group, whatever. They were there. So you you just you couldn't say these people weren't Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so some people some people have claimed that that that's what made that's what made it work. Hmm. That that. A, there was the pause because it's really the rapid increases that are disorienting to people. And that B is that we had some event that basically made it undeniable that these people were Americans. (laughs) And so short of another world war, which it's not clear that any of us would survive to argue about this (laughs) anyway, or mm-hmm. I, I don't I mean, that's I think that's why some people say, like, we need to hit pause. You're hearing this in Europe now. We just we need to hit pause and give everyone a chance to catch your breath and settle down and whatever. But. You know, we're also extraordinarily integrated with our neighbors through the economy, through movements of people. So the, how realistic that is, like, I don't mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily think that it is. So I I honestly don't know what to say about the future of immigration in the US. I'm not concerned. 
in terms of the, 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 the kind of concerns that people have, oh, they're not going to integrate. Like, I, I don't, I don't, none of the data suggests that that's, let me, let me, let me, let me rephrase this in a slightly less academic way. Parents are going to be just as annoyed that their kids don't speak the language of their grandparents <laughs> in the third generation now yeah. as they were in the past, right? Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't respect their elders like uh, they used to, well, or, or they don't. But you just whatever the like, customs they acclimate, were, right? They it's acclimate. like the first they, generation yeah. comes. Their kids generally speak the language because you're living with. Yeah. The grandparents who don't, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And by the next generation, these kids are indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. Indistinguishable. Other than their surnames. Which then change because they marry each other. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> who knows? Right? Um, and now they're probably hyphenated, too. <laughs> I just like, are, you know, you merge days. Who knows these days, right? These crazy yeah. kids. Um, so I don't, like, I'm, it's not, I, that's not what worries me. Mm -hmm. What worries me is a reaction to this, yeah. right? That that there's there's what seems to me at times just a, this deeply irrational fear. Um, but to to go back to using kind of more technical term, I, some of this is just around what people fear will be status reversal, right? That we're becoming a majority minority country. California is already majority minority. Mm -hmm. Like as goes California, goes the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, the majority of, of children under the age of five born in this country are minorities, right? Mm -hmm. And and just this is going to be a really different country in terms of people's ethnicity 50 years from now. But I'm not convinced that means value, like, you know, that that is going to change. I don't know. 50 years from now, we'll still be individualist capitalist <laughs> less, you know at the rate where you're going so mm -hmm. i mean that has its own issues depending on where you're coming from mm -hmm. but I, I, yeah i but but it's the it's the pushback part that's scary mm -hmm. and i don't think that we learn from the past <laughs> I, and as someone who primarily studies european politics not american politics like it's really scary Right. Mm -hmm. So we're living in a time where there's still a living memory of fascism and openly fascist parties are getting into government in Western Europe. And this is not mm -hmm. right. Uh, that's that's the worrisome piece. It is. So um, we've talked mostly about your research. Let's let's kind of switch back to your other role teaching. How does the research that you do feed back into the classroom and your work with students? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm teaching a class on European politics this semester, and uh, I, I pretty much opened up by saying, you know, everything that we thought we knew has been completely blown up <laughs> in the last 10 years. So I kind of don't know, you know, I don't know, guys. So you start the class uh, by dropping the book in the, in the trash can? Pretty, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> like, yeah, like, um, yeah, I mean... I, I have a lot of placeholder weeks in that syllabus <laughs> you know, to, to be announced. We're, we're actually we're gonna we're gonna do a week on Brexit, and it's the week of the hard deadline. Yeah, which uh, is yeah the week after spring break. And I'm uh -huh. like, look, excuse me, I can give you something to read that tells you, you know, how we got to the Brexit vote. 
But we may just have to turn on C-SPAN. And that's (laughs) going to be class. Class in current events, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's in real time, right? (laughs) And watching British Parliament Parliament is just Uh entertaining. Oh, it's totally entertaining. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we did did that last week in my my intro to comparative class. You know, talking about, um, we were doing kind of different political systems, you know, parliamentary systems. And so we had like kind of the Westminster model and, uh, you know, it said, you know, they're reading, you know, oh, this model's, you know, it's, it's adversarial. And so, no, we're going to watch. <laughs> and it's just, you. you know, it's, I had a nice, it was actually the first time that they had a television broadcast of um, prime minister's questions. And so Margaret Thatcher was standing, you know, in the well of the House of Commons with you know, the opposition screaming at her and her giving back as good as she got and someone yelling order in the background. And, you know, someone says something and you hear like, the you know, in the background. And, oh, yeah, it's just like total chaos. And I don't know what they thought of it. I think some of them were like thought it was wildly entertaining and other ones had this like total look of horror on their faces. You know, like this is how they do things. Oh, my God. So, um but no, the research in the classroom, I mean, I'm still kind of figuring things out here. <laughs> so this is my second semester. Um, I, I, I think, I actually think that, so, I mean, some of the conversations I had with my students and, and things that we do in class actually, you know, inform my research. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they dig up cool stuff that we talk about. Like, I, I come out of the classroom with ideas you know, that go into the hard drive <laughs> and taunt me. <laughs> study me, Think study about me. me. Exactly. Hello, hello. Um, you know, every anyone you talk to, anyone on this campus, I'm sure, has like five books in their head, right? The book I would write if I, you know, had limitless time and no mm-hmm. obligations. Um, no, I mean, I think I think that that's a relationship that, you know, one can feed into and inform the other. And in ways that are beneficial for everybody. Um, I I also um, some of the student. I, um, what I would like is to hopefully have more students kind of involved in these projects, mm-hmm. you know, and doing data collection and and I mean, Pomona students go all over the world, right? Um, particularly students who major in international relations or politics. I mean. Junior year, I think half of them are gone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we can kind of get something going there too, I think that would be cool. And in in my ideal world, I mean, you know, I would love to have like a policy research lab, and you can kind of you know send out the team, and then have them come back with beautiful data. Deploy them. Can, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk again in five years. Remember when? Yeah. As far as uh, your research, what are you working on now? <laughs> I had to finish my book. I had to finish my book project. Um, I had my dissertation and everyone always says your dissertation is the first really bad first draft. Right. And so <laughs> I've hit the point where I totally ripped it up and reformatted it. And now I'm kind of filling in holes in the summer. I just have to write. So that's kind of the big thing. So I've, I have my book project. I have um, the social protection book project which actually has like chapters and <laughs> is like partially written. Um, so hopefully that actually is going to go out for review at the end of the summer. Um, yeah, I think a lot of this is just, 
I, I taught at Swarthmore before I was here, and I did have a group of students kind of pulling some data for me. So some of these working papers on, you know, border zones and gray zones and why do conservatives give benefits to to the undocumented, um, that, that all has to be written up. So that's I have a lot on my plate. <laughs> Um, the, the, the funny thing about a CV is like, so you have what's out, right. And then you have like the papers, like they're done. You circulated them, just have to like clean them up and send them out. And then like the working papers are like the, the, the things that taunt you. They haunt you at night. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got to, I've got to clear the ducks, uh, fairly soon. There's one more question that, sorry, before, and I'm trying to remember the conversation that we had when we were were in your office um, about the kind of local governments where citizens were involved, that they were part of making decisions. I think we were talking about uh, an idea for an op-ed that you had and how that would work in California. Oh, yes. Can you remind me of... Sortition. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, so... Yes, because we had this whole joke about Athenian democracy. So, yeah. <laughs> so the joke is like in political science, like we have all these debates about, you know, democracy is that and the other. And it's like, well, the Greeks figured this all out like 2000 years ago. So what are, you know, what are we doing? And so one thing is partition, which is the idea that there's basically a lottery of citizens. And, you know, you randomly select 100 citizens and you task them with, you know, debating and making some big decision about some kind of policy. Um, and so so it's basically uh, the only form of sortition we, sortition we have in our democracy is is jury duty, mm-hmm. which most people try to wiggle their way <laughs> out of anyway. Um, so not clear how well that would work here. Um, but this is something that Ireland did, that, that they, they randomly selected a group of citizens and they met um, on a weekly basis, and they came to some big conclusions about um, kind of really contentious political issues um, that then were put to referendum because Ireland has constitutional referendums to make decisions about stuff, um, about big things, big constitutional issues, and it, it ended up working out. So um, they had a gay marriage referendum, which passed, which if you'd asked anyone, you know, 20 years ago, would conservative Catholic Ireland pass a gay marriage resolution? <laughs> the answer would be resoundingly no. Um, they just had the um, the abortion resolution pass because um, abortion was unconstitutional. Hmm. So they had to repeal the Eighth Amendment uh, to the Constitution and it and it passed. And they're, they're still hammering it out what this actually means in practice. And I think they will be for a while, but again, not anything that you would predict, you know, from 20 years ago. And so it kind of raises, these are, abortion in particular is such a deeply, deeply contentious issue. But the interesting that came out of the Irish, the the thing that came out of the Irish experience was that um, when people sit down and actually talk it through, they actually come out with decisions that tend to go further than politicians would take them. Hmm. Um, I think politicians tend to have kind of a more conservative view of their constituents than they actually would be. Um, And so it raises these interesting questions about if we have all these really deep contentious problems we can't agree on, you know, what if we 
experimented with something like that, maybe at a state level, right? In a country this big, that's really hard. And Ireland is a small country. Mm -hmm. Um, There's more people, I think, in L.A. County than in Ireland, (laughs) um, or in greater L.A., I should say, than in Ireland. Not L.A. County. Um, So, yeah. So, so, you know, in California is a state that has, in many ways, it's an amazing place, and in many ways, it has deep, deep problems. Right? It's it's kind of the extreme version of the what's going on in the rest of the country, and and um, there's also a sense that the referendum process, which was meant to be kind of more democratic and grassroots, has become totally professionalized and does not. It's it's just a tool of special interest groups. It's not this kind of grassroots thing anymore. Um, and that's something like sortition, so a, a kind of random selection of 100 Californians who came together to talk about, you know, hash out a big issue for the state and kind of then publicly issue their recommendations. And the rest of us could read it and review it and say, huh, and maybe shoo our politicians towards doing something about it. Um it's kind of attractive, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about it. If you think about the logistics of it in a state this big and this wildly diverse, then it's going to seem quite daunting, right? Um, hey, if we had that high-speed rail, it might make that a little easier, you know? But <laughs> It's another episode. <laughs> right? Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's... It's some, I mean, it's something we're going to talk about, but it, it, it's just also, I think, at, at a point where there's enormous frustration with politicians, with kind of politics at, with, as usual, um, with kind of in, these institutionalized processes, processes that people feel very disconnected from, that maybe this could have kind of a restorative effect hmm. um, on Californian politics, on American politics. I don't know. So it's at least worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, uh, we have to wrap this up. Um, our thanks to politics professor Erica Dobbs for talking with us about immigration and social protections. Um, thanks, Erica. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks, Erica. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.